Welcome back to Camp 8. I'm Kyle Gill here with Eli Sagor. Hey, Eli. Hey, Kyle. So, Eli, what have you been working on or thinking about recently? Oh, man, we're still in the middle of the COVID-19 thing, as I imagine we will be for a while. And it's been it's been a big change for us at SFEC. We've our staffing has changed. We uh, we were denied uh, by the university the uh, authorization to hire a new position. So it's just me at SFEC right now. And that's uh, in addition to working from home and all that other stuff, it's been a big change. Uh, and I, I guess I'm trying to trying to be positive. It's the challenges that make us, uh, you know, that make things work. So uh, we're getting along. What about you? Well, I've I've been able to work at the forestry center, which has been a really nice change from working at home. Um, although it's been super quiet because there's not many people around. Although we are starting to get projects up and running for the summer. Um, in project news, the full suite of forestry and forest ecology-based field projects investigating how plant growth and mortality um, are impacted by various things like temperature, precipitation, and biochar. Uh, those projects are just about getting up and running, and we'll have more starting um, over the next few weeks. But perhaps the coolest news from the last couple weeks, Eli, is that the local wolf pack called the Otter Creek Pack by Fond du Lac Band of Lake Superior Chippewa wildlife biologist Mike Schrag, the, the wolf pack recently had a litter of five pups. Uh, I got the chance to join Mike on looking for the den and then getting to collect some data and hair sample from those pups. No kidding. So he gets the, he's going to add those data to uh, the rest of the wolf population monitoring that he's been doing since 2016 across the CFC. It was it was pretty incredible for a forester to go get to pretend to be a wildlife biologist. So you for got to while. see the pups. Did you actually hold the pups? Yeah, we got to grab them. They pooped on me. They pooped on everybody else as well. <laughs> Apparently, that's the uh, that's their response to um, new situations. Yeah, so we uh, yeah we got to we got to pick them up and um, we calmed them by putting them all um, into a into a dark space prior to them uh, prior to collecting the data. It's simple stuff like weight and neck circumference, and mm. um, they put temporary radio transmitters on them uh, before we let them go, and and we got out of there so that the parents could come back. What a cool experience. Yeah, it was pretty great. So the wolves are definitely around. We know they're on the forestry center, and Mike's doing a great job of collecting data, both through camera trapping and uh, GPS tracking to um, to know where the, the wolves are use, using the forest. But enough about us and what's going on. Let's get going with this week's five questions with the forester interviews. Today we're going to learn more about forestry from the perspective of two individuals who work on the industrial side of the forest spectrum. My interviews today are with the current and prior forest ecologist at Bland & Paper Company. We're going to learn about forestry from their perspective and the development of Blandin's now quintessential prescription that we most often call the Blandin Mixed Wood. The first interview is with a forester who had many firsts in her career. She, that included being the first woman forester in many of the agencies that she worked for, and also she was on the leading edge of bringing together the once disparate fields of ecology and forestry. She discusses creating prescriptions that better align with ecological theory, including the mixed wood. We then continue with her successor, who's building off of her legacy to keep Blandin's lands resilient to ever-changing ecological, cultural, and economic demands. I started with the standard first question. Who are you, and who did or do you work for as a forester? My name is Cheryl Adams, and I am retired from Blandon Paper Company in Grand Rapids, Minnesota. I started there in 1999 as the forest ecologist and then transferred to the forest manager in 2014. But before that, I, I, I actually taught at Itasca Community College in the forestry department, and I was a soil scientist before that. So I've done forestry, soils, and ecology in my career. <laughs> what other groups or councils um, were you uh, were you on, or did you serve with in your went, while you were with Blandon? Um, the North Central Landscape Committee was a big one. Um, the Forest Resources Partnership. I worked partly with the council. The Minnesota Forest Resources Council, correct? Yep. 
Um, not, I didn't ever serve on it, but I worked quite a bit as a, a resource for them. Let's see. I'm trying to think of some of the other groups. I worked a lot with the DNR too. Okay. And that was all in official roles with, with Blandon, right? You were representing Blandon and the paper industry is my guess. Correct. And I also worked a lot with the University of Minnesota because they were kind of my partner in a lot of what at the time was considered harebrained <laughs> ideas. And so Tony D'Amato and I actually did a lot of work together. We might circle back to that in a, in a later question. So thinking about your career, what does it mean to you to be a forester and what inspired you to follow the career path as a forester? Well, initially, now you're going back into the 1970s. And so it was um, pretty rare for women to be in forestry, but I spent a lot of my time with my dad hunting and fishing, like so many of us foresters, <laughs> you know, so that was kind of what spurred me on. But initially, I didn't have a clue what forestry was, absolutely nothing, because I was born and raised in Detroit. So... <laughs> So forestry, just I read about it, and it was like, oh, I get to be outside. End of story. And I never changed my major. So, where did you end up doing your initial forestry degree? My undergraduate is in forest management, and my master's degree is in soils. And uh, which institutions? Michigan Tech for both of them. So did your perception on what it meant to be a forester evolve as you got into, as you learned more about it? And then as your career, as you went throughout your career, did your perception on what it meant to be a forester change at all? Significantly. When I was, when I was in college, they very much taught the forestry class as a very separate entity from ecology. That was in biology not to be part of the forestry curriculum except as an elective. So it was always, I always had this thing about, well, how do all the different forestry techniques, you know, selective harvest and clear cutting and so on and so forth, how do you know when to apply all of those things? It never quite made sense. It was kind of like, well, it's kind of willy-nilly and you kind of do it whatever is the most economical at the time. And so um, it was very geared for production forestry. You know, plantations was huge. Single species management was real prevalent. Aspen was considered a junk tree. You know, you get rid of it. And so um, initially it was very different. And then when I started teaching at Itasca Community College, I had to teach both silviculture and ecology. And all of a sudden, it was like, ding, ding, ding. These are how these two work together. <laughs> I mean, it took me a few years to get there. <laughs> but it, because I was in soils during that, the initial part of my career, I didn't spend a lot of time in forestry until I started teaching it again. And then it was kind of like, oh, when I teach these two now, I'm going to couple the two. So it makes more sense to figure out what different harvest methods you're going to use or intermediate treatments or whatever you're going to do fits more with what you're managing than just because you're going to, you know, grow a red pine plantation for timber production. So that's how it started to evolve. And then when I got with Blandin, my main mission when I started with Blandon was to figure out how to grow white spruce more economically. You know, at the time, it was very much plantation um, geared, very production, you know, almost agricultural-like. And at the same time, there was a lot of things going on between conservation and forestry and set-asides and preservation. And so John McCoy, who was the manager at the time, he was adamant that we think out of the box. 
step out of the box and start leaning more towards the conservation center um, instead of strictly timber production. So um, thus, that's why I got the position as the ecologist. That position at Blandon was the first ecologist position established nationwide in the forest products industry. So it was really out of the box at the time in 99. At the same time, I met Tom Duffus, who was with the um, Nature Conservancy, and he asked if Blandon would partner with Nature Conservancy going forward. And um, both Nature Conservancy and Blandon got a lot of grief from both the conservation side and from the industrial side because we were fraternizing with each other, <laughs> which sounds kind of corny now, but it was real prevalent late 90s, early 2000s. Um, you know, there was a lot of, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I was bumping for the radio listeners. I was bumping my fists together. A lot of conflict is what I'm assuming. Yes. You know, I mean, they got a lot of negative, Nature Conservancy got a lot of negative feedback, uh, Blandon got a lot of negative feedback, but then over time, um, because I went down a path of managing for mixed species instead of for individual species, which actually helped a lot when Blandon decided to go and get certified under the Sustainable Forestry Initiative because that helped alleviate a lot of the um, habitat issues, wildlife issues, because if you're managing by habitat types or plant communities, that way you kind of address all the ecology side of as, as well as the timber production side. You kind of can have your cake and eat it too. So it was very different from the time I started until I retired. And it sounds like you you were basically a leader in bringing the fields together in Minnesota. Is that, Am I interpreting that correctly? Like you, you got to help lead um, bringing those seemingly disparate uh, communities into actually having conversation and working together, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. In fact, I think, I think um, if you talk to Eli, Eli would remember that. And he, um, he was on a lot of the tours that I gave early on about how to do mixed wood management, particularly spruce mixed in with birch and aspen and some other conifers and, and doing intermediate treatments. That's when Tony D'Amato came in and helped with some of that. And it was a totally different way of you were managing the plant communities instead of the tree species. So, I mean, that was a huge change. You weren't managing cover types anymore. It was managing the plant community. And how did that impact Blandon's um, production goals? Did it um, positively or negatively impact what you all were able to harvest off of Blandon land? It didn't, it didn't negatively impact at all. In fact, the philosophy, you know, with Blandon, when I first started with Blandon, it was to produce as much spruce as you can on all of Blandon land. So when I came and started moving towards managing plant communities, it was like, well, what are we going to do with hardwoods? We don't use those at the mill, and yet we have a whole bunch of them. So what do you do with that? Well, then it, it got to be, well, if, if you manage for what you can grow, you can market that, and then you can turn around and purchase the wood that you need for the mill from the sources that can also produce it, instead of trying to get all of it off of land and land. So it was kind of a switch in how the economic model was. It was managing still for forest products, but managing for what the land actually could support instead of trying to beat the land into submission to produce just what the mill needed. 
it was very, it was a very different way of looking at it. And like I said, people thought Blandon was kind of cuckoo, and I, I was the face of that cuckooness. <laughs> and that was a role you're you were okay taking on. It sounds like. Yes, it didn't bother me in the least because, <laughs> and I think it partly had to do with. Um, being a first from the day I got into forestry, um, when I started at Michigan Tech, there were 88, um, people in my class, only six were women. And when I started my career on the Huron-Manistee, I was the first woman on the Huron-Manistee National Forest to go on fire detail and actually fight fire. So, you know, being kind of a first is kind of like, well, I've been doing this, you know, my whole career, you know, this is just one more time. And I think that um, the, the, the change in the forestry, and I also think it was um, very different for the logging force, too, to be working so closely with a woman forester instead of men. And then not only was I female, but now I was in this role called an ecologist that was supposed to be kind of green. And so they were, uh, the loggers were very apprehensive that I would be, um, how do I want to say, ultra conservative and how they could log. And so um, I think um, that was, a hurdle to get over with as well. And um, over time, they realized that what I was doing was good forest management, and they could see how well the mixed wood was working. And, you know, that it wasn't, I think probably the biggest switch was I was a really strong proponent of cut to length. Um, I felt that, um, skidding and um, a feller buncher had their place, but I was more uh, specific on where each set of equipment could operate for because of what they were doing and the outcome I wanted to have as far as um, scarification and those types of issues and slash disposal. And so um, the loggers pretty much came found that you know, I was much more specific in where I wanted to place that equipment and because of the outcomes. So you weren't the enemy after all? No, I wasn't. It, it just took a few years to all of a sudden for them to go, oh, she's not so bad. <laughs> nice. Well, thanks for being a leader and, uh, and sounds like so many different fronts. What would you say is the favorite prescription or project that you either developed or implemented was during your career and why? Well, the, the biggest one was my charge when I first worked, started working at Blandon, and that was to figure out a way to better grow white spruce. And um, that primarily came about by Dr. John Kotar developing a habitat typing um, scheme for Blandon and Boise's land at the time. And this was prior to the state coming on board with their plant communities. So this was, you know, I worked a lot with John Almendinger and Dan Hansen. I mean, those two were kind of my go-to people whenever I had questions in my mind about, do you think this is the right thing for this habitat type? Because they were working in the plant communities. And I had actually worked with them prior to that, before working with Blandon, with them on developing their plant communities. So I knew them really well. So they were kind of my sounding board going forward. And I had a group of foresters at Blandon that were very receptive to change. And I think it was partly because um, they had seen the amount of money and the success or failure, if you want to call it that, of the plantations. Blandon was spending a lot of money to establish white spruce plantations with, I would say, 
poor to medium results for the money they were putting into it. And so my philosophy was, well, spruce isn't a plantation species. It never has been up here. So why don't we grow it the way it's meant to be grown? And so that's when we blanded and started doing the mixed wood management where we planted it in conjunction with aspen, balsam fir, um, uh, paper birch. There was some pine involved. And so um, if it didn't have the seed sources, we created them by planting. And um, we did a lot of different things from underplantings to clear cutting and planting and then doing um, a thinning between the ages of 17, 7 and 14 years old of the aspen, spacing everything out. Um, it was a real challenge. And it's fun today to look at some of those earlier, um, I'll, I'll say tests, but we kind of jumped into it with both feet. <laughs> And it's really fun to watch it. I mean, I'm really impressed with how it's turning out. And Sawyer would probably be a great one to actually talk about what he's finding now because it's been 20 years. So that so, was pretty shortly after you came on that you started exploring the mixed wood management rather than single species spruce management? Right. It was almost immediately when I came on board. In fact, Blandon in 2001 and two used a lot of herbicides. And um, I stepped up and said, hey, you know, we should be knowing what we're using the herbicides for instead of just kind of using them willy-nilly here. And really questioned the use of the herbicides. And I'm not against herbicides, so don't get me wrong. It's just that I felt that we were non-specific uh, in how we applied them. And um, so that's when we had a moratorium on the use of herbicides. And Blandon pretty much quit using herbicides after that, except for doing like controlling uh, vegetation along roadways and stuff like that, you know, but... Um, yeah, herbicides pretty much became a thing of the past at that time. So, yeah, that was in 2001 and two. So as you were developing that as a prescription style, what did you, and you couldn't, you or you weren't using herbicide, but you're okay with having a bit of competition, but were there other competition reduction techniques that you had to bring into the prescription of the mixed wood? Well, it was kind of interesting because that's why we did the underplanting to start with is because then it didn't have to compete against the aspen and a lot of the um, shrubs component was a little bit lower by because of the shading from the overstory. So, under, so underplanting into a mature stand? That had been commercially thinned. Okay. And we tr trialed several different kinds of basal areas you know, anywhere from 60 to 90, you know, trying to figure out if there was a trick basal area that would keep the vegetation from exploding, the, especially the shrub component. And um, so that was one technique. The one that we ended up pretty much, and there probably the biggest drawback for that was the overstory removal down the road. And that was, you know, trying to avoid the planting stock <laughs> and not run it all over and stuff. <laughs> so, I mean, there was some, some tricks with that. Um, and I think in the long run from a more economical side, and actually this isn't um, too far off on some of the natural regeneration phenomenons on some of the plant communities that white spruce um, falls on, but um, clear-cutting a mature aspen stand that didn't have all the components there, then you plant it to white spruce, but you didn't plant it at a plantation stocking. It was lower than a plantation stocking. And then going back in and releasing all the conifer and then spacing the aspen off the conifer 
as I think, and that's why I said it'd be interesting to talk to Sawyer to find out how this is really working now. <laughs> because most of the stands when I left are probably the oldest was 20 years old. So, you know, I don't really know what's going on. <laughs> so you had the freedom, it sounds great. You had the freedom to say, hey, here's how this ecological system seems to work. And we, we can develop a prescription that works with that rather than trying to, um, rather than trying to be super heavy handed and, and deny everything else that maybe wants to be there is coming back easily. You were able to try and work with those things together in order to develop that prescription, it sounds like. Oh, absolutely. In fact, one of the ones that um, Tony D'Amato did um, had to do with doing what we called string of pearls. And that was um, small openings in a, where you actually clear cut the pearls and in a mature aspen stand and planted those to white spruce. So it would be more of a gap type phenomenon. The biggest problem with that came is that the herbaceous side by opening it up just exploded in those openings and the spruce had a real hard time competing. So, um, you know, especially if you were thinking you weren't going to come back, to do any kind of an intermediate treatment or release because we were trying to figure out how to do it more economically, you know, and that was one, one of the tests. So, I mean, we did underplanting and even underplanting. There was the gap type phenomenon. There was clear cutting and planting. So there were a number of different scenarios that were tried to figure out how to grow white spruce more economical. Good freedom of creativity or freedom for creativity, it sounds like. Well, in tool, you know, it was really nice. I have to say that management was very supportive of, of that. And I don't think I could have done what I did if it hadn't been that I had a group of foresters that were willing to experiment. And I had forest managers that said, that, yeah, go for it. So, I mean, I think that if you don't have that, that it would have been a lot more difficult for me mm -hmm. to do that. So what did uh, being a forester look like for you on a daily and seasonal basis? Um, I also, uh, part of my responsibility as a forest ecologist was I did a lot of GIS and I was in charge of the whole GIS system. And so um, during the winter and also during the summer, I did a lot of GIS. So I had probably for me, I had a lot of inside time. I would say probably 50% of my time, depending on the season, was um, out in, the, in the office. Um, I also was in charge of forest inventory. So that took up a lot of office time too. So I did a lot of going out. I did all the site inspections because Blandon did a lot of site inspections. And so that was usually in the fall and then again in the spring. So it was the summer season site inspections and then the fall, I mean the winter site inspections. I would go out periodically all year round to see what people were doing and how things were going. And so I would say 50% of my time was inside and 50% was outside. And that was pretty much year round. Mine was most, I, I didn't do a lot of, um, what do I want to say? I didn't do a lot of the legwork. The foresters did most of that. You know, I went out with a, with them a lot of um, the time, and we talked a lot about how to lay out the prescriptions and, and do that kind of stuff, but I didn't hardly ever do that myself. We were all working together try, because this was all new and different. Everybody was trying to figure out, well, is this the way it should be done? Is that the way it should be done? You know, so, you know, I, I was going out a lot going, well, you know, I kind of had this in mind and, you know, that in mind. And, and so it was um, a lot of teamwork. They used to, 
because I was coming up with these ideas all the time, they used to call me the Adams factor. <laughs> well, you got to consider the Adams factor, they would say. <laughs> so, I mean, but it was all in fun. And, you know, I mean, the outcome was great. You know, I mean, everybody worked well together. It was a lot of teamwork. So what would you say were your uh, biggest successes and challenges during your career? Probably the biggest success was working with the, um, the mixed wood. I thought that that, I mean, to be able to apply everything you've learned up to that time, you know, as far as ecology and some cultural techniques and, um, you know, habitat requirements. I mean, it was like the culmination of everything coming together and being put together. So I think that by far was my most challenging and rewarding. Um, probably the hardest thing was convincing people that when you manage ecologically, you're also managing economically. That, it was a really tough sell. And it wasn't, it, it's from looking at it both from establishment phenomenons to um, harvesting, you know, what you're going to get as your end products, you know, and how much are you going to spend in between. So, I mean, that was probably the biggest challenge for me. And um, also, too, um, like I said, early on, the whole um, butting heads of conservation versus industry was a real tough one, too. I mean, that was a real battleground for all. I mean, because that's when the guidelines were coming in. So, I mean, it, it was a, a kind of a contentious time when I started at Blandon. So th those are probably the two biggest ones in recent, recent times. Wow. I really appreciate Cheryl taking the time out of her retirement to share her perspective and knowledge with us. I also appreciated getting to learn more about her leadership in the forestry community in Minnesota and the region. And as a forester who's still in the front half of my career, it's really interesting to hear uh, and to imagine a time prior to ecologically based forestry. Eli, did you have any follow-up thoughts on Cheryl's interview and her perspective on forestry? Oh, I just thought it was so great to hear from Cheryl. She's such an interesting person. She has uh, She's blazed so many trails in the Minnesota forestry community. Uh, that uh, and and it's just fun to hear from her, and I love that laugh. It's hard to hear her talking and telling those stories without, uh, at least for me, breaking out in a big smile. And so I, I just thought that was wonderful. It was, uh, you know, I miss being able to work with Cheryl. We've worked on a number of programs, ecosystem silviculture, and a number of other programs over the years, and it's uh, it's just always good to hear her voice. So yeah, I'm 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 glad you uh, you were able to talk with her. We get to follow up on Cheryl's interview by learning more about who is building off of Cheryl's success at Bland & Paper Company. And per usual, I started the interview by asking, who are you and who do you work for as a forester? Uh, my name is Sawyer Scher, and uh, I work as the forest ecologist for Bland & Paper Company, UPM Bland & in Grand Rapids, Minnesota. Are there other groups or councils that you're a part of as part of your role with Bland & yeah, there is. It's actually turned into a big part of what I do is sort of representing the company and various forest management organizations and groups. Um, quite a few of those are local in the Minnesota area. So I work with the Minnesota Forest Resources Council, landscape committees. Um, I help as sort of a technical advisor to SFEC for um, getting continuing ed to foresters. I'm involved with Minnesota Logger Education Program, uh, National Council of Air and Stream Improvement, and so just lots of different organizations that are involved with forest management. Um, I try to be involved and represent our company and, and sort of our viewpoint of how forestry should work in Minnesota. Is that something as you got into the position you knew you'd be um, involved with or is, did that kind of uh, come as a surprise as you got into the position? I certainly knew there would be some of that but it's developed over so I've worked for Blandon for 
roughly four years. And in that amount of time, it's sort of built over time. And I think mostly due to my own choices and that I see there being real value in that. Uh, Blandon's always been really involved with trying to be, you know, part of the forestry community in the state. Um, we see that as sort of part of our mission and particularly with working on the land side, you know, one of the core principles of our land management, or at least that's developed over time is to have it be sort of a model of forest management in the state. And so as much as we can, we like to share that information and be involved with people that are trying new things so that we can, you know, say, we've tried this, we've tried that, that didn't work, this did, um, and provide sort of a industry perspective. A lot of these groups are really made up of a lot of academics and folks from the public agencies and, you know, certainly industries involved. And we like to make sure that we're involved there because the way everyone's managing impacts our long-term viability. So um, over time, I've seen it, I've sort of added on more and more of those roles and I really take those opportunities anytime they come, whether they're long-term sort of appointments or, or short, short-term little projects. Um, if I can fit it in, we really try to make it work. So what does it mean to you to be a forester and what inspired you to follow the career path? Oh boy. Uh, being a forester, you know, traditionally one would think it's just like managing the forest and, and it's become pretty clear over time that it really can be a lot more things. You know, we have, Foresters in Minnesota that are like 100% working in the field, doing the real traditional role of sort of setting up timber sales, day-to-day um, -day forest management activities. And then we have people that I would consider foresters that rarely, if ever, even step foot in the woods. And, you know, they're all part of the same community. And, you know, while my title is forest ecologist, I still sort of identify as a forester. And I think it really just has to do with having at least some background in how forests function, how we can manage them and interest in making sure that they're around and useful to, to people for a variety of different reasons. Um, you know, so it's, it's incredibly diverse. Like every day it seems like you find sort of new relevancy to forests and that's pretty cool. The, I don't know exactly how I got involved with it because in terms of being exposed to traditional forestry, I really had none until I got to college. I was involved. I grew up west of the Twin Cities, um, like a half hour west of the Twin Cities. And, and the area I grew up in, at least when I was young, was kind of an exurban landscape you know more rural than the suburbs but really not out in the country and we did some small farming and things and so I was obviously out and involved with sort of managing land and I had an interest in hunting and fishing and camping and a lot of the things we hear a lot of foresters bring up just spending time outdoors um, and I ended up wanting to, I knew I wanted to go to the University of Minnesota for something environmental or natural resources related and it really came down to to be honest I went to one of the like college I, I think I had already been accepted to the U and you could go meet with various faculty and things from different departments and and the forestry department was just like so welcoming and made it clear that the profession was very interesting and I went to some of these other organizations that they kind of turned me away, like made me feel like it wasn't that exciting. So I ended up in forestry and it was just like immediately a really good fit. And I think partly because I had this background of sort of like farming and being interested in how the land could provide for people. And then, you know, this, idea of forestry of just like balancing objectives and having the forest be useful to society 
uh, while still providing, you know, like clean water and wildlife habitat and just balancing all those things seemed really interesting. So I ended up there. <laughs> so what would you say being a forester looks like for you on a daily and or seasonal basis? On a daily basis, well, it, it's interesting to bring up seasonal because it can change so much throughout the seasons for, for my job, especially um, even on like a weekly basis. So my role at Blandon, it's a little bit unique in that in terms of forest industry and landowners that are kind of in the industrial realm, um, this position's kind of unique. Um, we're in a situation where we're a large landowner, but in terms of industrial forest landowners, we're relatively small. And so we have a pretty small team of folks managing it. And I fill sort of a lot of different shoes to make sure and wear a lot of different hats, I guess, to make sure that we're getting everything done. So I, sometimes of the year I'm like a forest planner and might be involved in writing long-term strategic plans for the forest. Um, right now, you know, in the month of May, I'm sort of the silviculturist and overseeing the planting program and making sure that we get all of our reforestation done. Um, towards the end of this month, I'll be playing as sort of forest certification specialist and dealing with our forest certification audits and and um, so just throughout the year, it just varies so much, which is really nice. I get to dabble in a lot of different parts of being a forester. Um, and, you know, I get a nice mixture of field work and office work um, and can kind of manage my schedule accordingly. Um, it's, it's really interesting. I'm still trying to grasp how to be the most involved with these and keep up on all the different seasonal aspects of my job. Uh, in your um, prior question response um, about your career path, you mentioned uh, traditional. And I just want you to dig in a little bit more and what, what's your idea of what a traditional forester does and how is that similar or different from what you are doing on a, a daily or seasonal basis? Right, I mean, it's all relative and that's something I use to sort of define um, what some folks might call a field forester or a boots on the ground forester. This idea of somebody who's out probably working in a relatively, um, you know, of region of the state or even a part of one county. And they're overseeing kind of the day-to-day -day forest operations out there and really doing things like um, setting up timber sales, so cruising timber, estimating the volumes, preparing that area for a timber sale, overseeing those timber sales, um, and really spending a lot of time, boots on the ground, ensuring that those operations go, go through. Um, and my role differs in that I, I spend very little time doing things like cruising timber, setting up timber sales. I work more on the back end of trying to help our field foresters at Blandin. We've got two uh, land management foresters that I work with really closely, Greg Dewey and Darren Erickson. And, and my role is more in trying to steer how they're doing their job and ensuring that as they do their day-to-day -day operations, um, setting up timber sales, um, designing silvicultural prescriptions, things like that. I'm there to help kind of provide a vision for how they're doing those, the types of management we're going to do, and then ensuring method to ensure that we've got a plan in place for regeneration that's, that's sound, that I do a lot of follow-up monitoring to make sure that everything went according to the plan. So I'm sort of providing long-term strategy and guidance to how they do things. And then I'm also sort of the checks and balances to make sure 
we're doing what we're saying, doing what we think we are, and if not, trying to come up with ideas for how to do them better in the future. Speaking of prescription, what would you say is your favorite prescription or project that you've uh, either developed or implemented, and why? Hmm. Well, <laughs> this is funny you ask, because working for Blend and it's We've got sort of a signature type of management that we do, and we call it the blended mixed wood. And it's really this, this method of increasing species diversity and restoring conifers on a pretty wide range of, of plant communities, forest types across Minnesota and really our, our management area. And it involves basically a, an enrichment planting of long-lived conifers with a real emphasis on spruce, which is an important fiber for us. And that's over the last 20 or so years kind of developed into our signature management strategy. We, we sort of tinkered with that and defined it over the years. Cheryl Adams, my sort of predecessor in this position, was very involved with the development of that. Lots of trial and error in establishing that. And so as a person working for Blend, and we're very proud of that prescription. We continue to tinker with that over time, but it seems like this great example of a type of prescription that is really founded in restoring sort of ecological function and structures out on the landscape. So it's ecologically based. It provides probably some unique wildlife habitat compared to a lot of other prescriptions that are happening in timber steel just by by bringing more long-lived conifers onto the landscape which is a goal that we have in north central minnesota sort of restoring that conifer component in the region and it's obviously fits well with at least our our economic model of, of what we think is viable in the future um, and so that one, I have to say, is, I mean, it's been so fun to watch that. And, and the first couple of years of being involved with that and seeing every step of the process and how dependable that prescription can be um, has been really fun. Um, you know, Cheryl was instrumental in developing that. And it's almost like a bulletproof prescription if we do it on the right native plant communities. If we do it on the right site, we've got a very kind of narrow set of parameters that we need to hit and we can make that a success. And so in some ways it's almost like now I'm looking for what are the new opportunities to develop something um, to hit those, to kind of check those same boxes to develop a new prescription that meets some other need and that might be in a different forest type or, or something like that. So what we're really working on now, since I've started with blend and I saw a need within our land base. And I think across the greater region to put more emphasis on managing some of our historically sort of neglected cover types. So things like Northern hardwoods, um, lowland hardwoods, um, these plant communities and forest types that we've managed a little bit in the past, but maybe not with as much thought and intention to really their long-term future. And so in the last four years, I've been trying to figure out ways to manage, at least on Blandon's ownership, um, some of these kind of forgotten forest types um, and and we're starting to do things and learn from other folks in the region and even across the Midwest, you know, how they're managing those things. And we're trying to find ways to tailor them to our land base because a Northern hardwoods forest in Itasca County, Minnesota is quite different than they're dealing with on the Menominee reservation in Wisconsin. Um, there's similarities, but there's some pretty dramatic differences in how we can effectively manage them. And um, it's, it's a lot of new information to take in and fun to experiment with. If people wanted to have a better sense of what the, um, Blandon mixed wood prescription looks like, is there a place that they can find that or is, 
or, yeah. or where where can people learn more about that? Yeah, or would you be willing to go through like what your current steps are in that prescription? Right, the blended mixed wood is. I can provide here a general framework of sort of how it happens on a real typical site. Um, we have a few variations of it that really have the same end goal, getting there with a different strategy. All of these are outlined on the silviculture library, the Great Lakes silviculture library in various places that I forget the names of, but you could find them on there. Um, certainly. But on a real typical site, the most successful model we have is taking a site that was predominantly Aspen cover type. Traditionally, it, a real typical northern Minnesota, nearly pure Aspen, maybe Aspen and Birch mixture. Oftentimes, these are occurring on uh, like MHN 44 plant community is like the, the plant community that this really fits well with. Um, if we look at the kind of natural history of those ecosystems, this, this prescription is really designed to develop that structure that that plant community develops into. And so it, it's really relatively simple. It involves a final harvest or clear cut of the aspen, um, you know, with reserves following all the BMPs and forest management guidelines. But essentially it boils down to a real simple clear cut harvest. Um, depending on the amount of slash that's left after the harvest, we may do some site preparation. Typically that's a roller chopping treatment, which really is doing no soil scarification or anything like that. It's just breaking down slash and brush to essentially make the site easy for people to walk through because the most important thing is that next spring after the harvest, we're going in and planting what would be called a, an enrichment planting or a interplanting. Um, and so we're, we're planting predominantly white spruce, but often what we're doing is a, a mixture of white spruce, white pine, red pine, and balsam fir. Probably 75% of that mixture is white spruce, and um, the rest are just kind of thrown in as maintaining or reestablishing a seed source for trees that we know are, are suited to that site. We plant those out, and we allow them to grow and we allow their aspen to sort of re-sprout and flush in a typical coppice fashion um, and we just sort of let that sit because what we know about particularly the white spruce is that it tends to and we've learned this from a lot of experience in trying to establish plantations we know it doesn't do terribly well with really high exposure so very open sites where there's a ton of direct sunlight and potential for droughty conditions. Um, we tend to see poor survival in white spruce in the early years. Um, and, and so by letting these, these seedlings sit and regenerate with the aspen, we get this great benefit of the aspen basically providing shade to to the white spruce seedlings and other conifer seedlings for a few years. In a sense, it's almost like a, a miniature shelter wood. We're just letting it happen on a very small scale. Over time, we found that obviously Aspen is incredibly competitive. And we found that while the white spruce will always persist and hold on, it really slows down in terms of growth, or at least isn't allowed to to fully take advantage of the site. And so after three to four years, we're applying what's called a release treatment. And we're having a crew go in with handheld brush saws and basically cut all the deciduous stems within four feet of these planted conifer trees. And it just provides a release, gives them a couple of years worth of basically free to grow conditions to really develop build crown, build, you know, uh, leaf area and become a more competitive tree. And from there, the, the stand sort of 
just develops into this really nice mixture of, of conifers and deciduous trees that fits surprisingly well with the natural model of that forest. What would you say have been your biggest successes or challenges during your career? Oh, interesting. You know, it's, things are always changing. One of the, I, I mentioned earlier about trying to develop ways to manage some of these other cover types that maybe don't get as much attention in Minnesota. And we're starting to see successes in that we're seeing treatments we like, we're seeing anecdotal evidence of like good regeneration in these treatments and structures that we think really fit with the ecological model. And that's been a great success. The challenges are in how we ramp that up to a point where it's really operational um, and where we can effectively manage the entire forest. And some of the challenges we're experiencing is that we've really built our entire industry in Minnesota around a few species and, and we're having to come up with ways to incentivize our logging contractors and in some cases just educate them at how managing and working in these northern hardwoods forests can be substantially different than working in an aspen single age kind of clear-cut scenario you know the whole idea about how to approach the site is different often your intentions are very different when you're entering a stand and it's it's obvious that it's new to us it's new to the logging contractors and we want to help guide them in a way to make it successful for them make it successful for us as the landowner and ultimately result in a desirable outcome in the forest um, which hopefully is a more healthy well-managed forest made up of multiple species but it's just the added complexity of working in some of these forests is just so different from what the sort of logging community, the forestry community is used to on a sort of production forestry uh, basis. Um, but we think it's, it's a valuable, we know people do it in other regions and it's just a learning curve for us. And we think it'll set us up really well for the future when some of our other forests like these mixed wood forests develop, they're going to be a more complex, diverse forest and are going to require new challenges. So we want to work with with our logging contractors and our foresters to be thinking about how do we maintain an increased diversity and work with it and utilize that that diversity. I mean, when we get into these more complex systems, it becomes more sorting of different products, different sizes, different species. And so we go from, you know, maybe 30 years ago, these guys were used to basically cutting pulpwood and it all got stacked into one pile on a landing to now we might have, I mean, we've, we've had timber sales in the last year where we might have anywhere from 10 to 15 different product sorts on a single site. And, you know, it becomes infinitely more complex, but the benefits are, are definitely there. So it's a new challenge, but we're, you know, we're, we're seeing the benefits and we think we can make it work. And that's been really exciting to be involved with. How would you summarize those benefits short and long-term? Short-term, we've got tremendous benefit in that we're managing a part of our land base that has historically been hard to manage. So on Blandon, our Blandon land ownership, maybe a third of our ownership is comprised of forest types that are not utilized species that are not utilized by our mill or many of the other large mills in the area for that matter and so immediately short term in the economic side it's very clear that if we want to be showing a return off of our land it's important to be managing the entire thing um, and so from a short-term perspective that's been i think very good for us um, 
also just short term, relatively short term, it seems that we're increasing at least the age diversity of that cover type. Northern hardwoods and oak forests in Minnesota are surprisingly even aged. We have a tremendous amount, pretty much central northern Minnesota that regenerated probably after some extensive cutting at the turn of the 19th or 20th century. And, uh, you know, so there's a ton of forest out there that's between 80 and 120 years old. Um, and when you actually look into them, they're, they're really even aged forests. They're not functioning as the multi-aged forest that we know they should be. So in a relatively short amount of time, and we're thinking within, you know, we say we've started putting an increased attention to this in the last five years, we think within the next 10, which in forestry terms is relatively short term, we're going to see an introduction of an entire new age class of, of these northern hardwoods forests, which is fantastic. Long term, I think we're going to be seeing increased species diversity um, and hopefully increased resiliency of the forest. We know that structural diversity, age class diversity, and species diversity are all some of our most important strategies for increasing resilience of the forest, whether that's to climate change or insect and disease outbreaks. Um, and increasingly we're getting a sense that it also provides resiliency to future markets um, for wood products. And, and while we maintain our forest and we are um, obviously committed to supplying our own mill, we also look at our forest and think, you know, how do we make this, how do we manage our forest so that we can provide the highest and best valued product to the entire market. And so if we have more species, more diversity of age classes, we're just building a more kind of diverse portfolio um, from which we can manage from. It adds a lot of complexity to how we do things and the timings of things. But I think it'll in the long term really reduce kind of volatility and how um, the returns off of our forest um, come in. So, Well, you're definitely speaking my language there, Sawyer. <laughs> you're hitting my, uh, my biases for, uh, even though it's more complex in the short term and like you say, a learning curve to get used to, the uh, the long, when we're thinking longer term, it seems to have a lot of benefits. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's definitely times when you kind of wonder what you're doing, and it can be hard to explain that. I think to a lot of foresters, especially ones with sort of an ecological background or a bias towards ecological management, it seems obvious, but when you actually have to explain that and and we're very lucky at within Blandin and UPM where we've got very good support for the work we're doing. But when you are a landowner that one of your core missions is maximizing, you know, value off the forest, some of these things can be really hard to quantify. We haven't fully grasped how to quantify that either, but the, the long-term benefit seems obvious to us as forest managers. And we're, we're learning over the years different ways of explaining that to our partners within the industry, other landowners, and, and those sorts of things. Well, thank you so much for being willing to subject yourself to five questions with the forester. Obviously, there's a few more than five, but I want to extend my sincere thanks for uh, being willing to be interviewed here. Yeah, absolutely. It's been really fun. It was relatively painless, I guess. So. <laughs> Sounds good. All right. Thank you. Well, thanks again to both Cheryl and Sawyer for being willing to share their perspectives on forestry with me and the Camp 8 listeners. I really enjoyed getting to learn from these two, who are, who are from different generations, obviously, and have different backgrounds, but who are both taking a leading role in implementing ecological industrial forestry practices. They really give us the opportunity to um, learn from the work that they're doing. Yeah, it was just great. You know, so interesting to hear Cheryl in the first um, conversation talking about 
you know, getting a bit of blowback from people who are not used to that style of forestry and, and how she, you know, did the work needed and, and collected the data and, and showed what happens on the, and tested and, and learned and figured out what happens on the ground as a result of the mixed wood approach. And then it was so interesting, wasn't it, to hear uh, Sawyer uh, describe that as kind of their bread and butter. You know, Sawyer, mm-hmm. to, to him... Within 20 years, basically, it right. becomes bread and butter. Right. You can really see the world changing, uh, you know, just listening to those two interviews. I, I found that fascinating. Uh, and and it, he's doing a, it seems like he's doing a similar thing by expanding, uh, using ecological theory to say, hey, we need to be doing a little bit more with our hardwoods. So he, the, the ability for the forest ecologist to have some freedom... Um, he's kind of running with that and thinking about what's next in terms of market diversification uh, being based yep. in forest diversification. Yeah, yeah, they've uh, they've got a good culture over there. I think they've really um, they really are an innovative company, and I, I think that's uh, that's that's uh, done very well for them, and, and it's it's really helped to lead I think some change uh, throughout the forestry community. So yeah, those were two good stories, and and uh, you know from two interesting people. Yeah, and we'll get more of those in the future. But that just about wraps up this episode of Camp 8. As Minnesota's stay-at-home orders evolve into their next phase, we encourage you all to be vigilant in practicing socially responsible work and recreation in our Minnesota forests. Camp 8 is produced by the Sustainable Forest Education Cooperative and supported by the University of Minnesota College of Food, Agricultural, and Natural Resources Sciences the University of Minnesota Extension, and the Cloquet Forestry Center. Thanks for tuning in, and keep in touch.